Maui, swimming away. Uh, there was supposed to be tiger sharks nearby. Mm -hmm. I cut myself. I was completely, completely terrified. And I felt this big head bump into me. I immediately started pummeling away at it. And when you know, it was Celine Dion. Oh, oh hey, we're on the air. Wow. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, welcome to our lucky, 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 lucky 13th episode of Hey, All You Zombies. My name is Chris Abel. I'm Richard Krauss. Richard Krauss over there through the magic romper room, magic mirror there. Uh, and as always, we're going to start off our episode by taking a look at the fun game that we have called Movie Pistols at Dawn. Last week, our subject was, what is your favorite movie Martian? Lots of movies about Mars. Most of them, I think all of them are really bad. <laughs> There's some really cool characters. And so we asked you to submit your own. And uh, I put forth my uh, suggestion, which was Tars Tarkas from John Carter. Uh, and Richard chose the uh, ah, ah, guys from uh, Mars Attacks. You voted. Thank you all for going to HeyAllYouZombies.com and voting. And uh, amazingly, uh, for our 13th episode, I win, and I won by a landslide, which Listen, is very I, rare. I have to tell you that I, I think that the button on mine probably wasn't working, so people were voting, because John Carter is such an awful movie. <laughs> How can it possibly beat a Tim Burton movie, even a lesser Tim Burton movie, is still more interesting than John Carter is. Uh, it's the geek factor, you see. It is, and I it's feel sad for the geeks. Geeks can, can that the part of being a geek is that you can express a certain amount of love for something that everybody else kind of trashes on. Um, so I'll do my, my little uh, victory zombie dance, which is kind of... Yeah, nice. There I, we like go. That. I enjoy that. Yeah. Uh, later on in the show, we're going to be talking about sharks because it's Shark Week over at Discovery Channel. Uh, but first, uh, Richard, you're going to regale us with your adventures from last night. Yeah, last night, I, I host uh, a lot of Canadian premieres for movies. And, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I hosted the Canadian premiere of uh, The Campaign, starring uh, Will Ferrell and, and Zach Galifianakis, both of whom were here. And I, I hosted two events with them. One uh, was at the Hockey Hall of Fame in Toronto. Now, that has nothing to do with the movie, except that Will Ferrell's a huge hockey fan, and he wanted to see the Stanley Cup up close, so they, they arranged it there. So Will Ferrell and uh, Zach Galifianakis drove down Young Street on a Zamboni, and they arrived at the Hockey Hall of Fame, and we did the event with the mayor of Toronto, who taught them how to campaign and said some bad things about the Toronto Star, who he has a war going on with, and the whole thing. So that was fun enough. Then, later on that night, we were meant to do a, a, another event, but it was going to be much simpler. I was just to bring them up on stage before a screening of the movie. There were five, 600 people there. Uh, bring them up. They were just going to wave. Hey, everybody, enjoy the movie, and it's awesome to be in Toronto, and leave the stage, and that was it. It was supposed to be over. But somewhere along the line, there was a breakdown in communication, so I go up on stage. I've got the microphone. I'm like, hey, hey, here's everybody. I introduce them. And on the way up, somebody gave them microphones. They weren't supposed to have microphones, but they get microphones. And so now they both got microphones, so they feel you know obliged to say something more than just, you know, hey, welcome. And uh, so uh, Will Ferrell says, well, Zach Galifianakis says, what should we do? Will Ferrell says, let's sing the Canadian National Anthem. So I make everybody stand, and uh, we sing the Canadian National Anthem, except that Will Ferrell doesn't know the words. Of course, he knows the first few words, and then he starts singing about drinking maple syrup and eating poutine and that sort of thing. Zach Galifianakis is doing some kind of like weird sign language, you know. So <laughs> it was just an odd event. It was just kind of an yeah. odd event. And, and then it was over, and people were confused and upset. I don't know. They were, they were confused, and so then we left, and that was the end of that one. Uh, but last night, I hosted the Canadian premiere for uh, The Expendables 2. And, you know, this movie stars Stallone and Schwarzenegger and Chuck Norris and Jean-Claude Van Damme and lots of other people, uh, Bruce right. Willis, and, uh, but also uh, Randy Couture, who's a five-time UFC champion, and uh, Terry uh, Crews, who is a former NHL guy, no, National Football League, NFL guy, I'm not a sports guy, uh, NFL yeah. guy, and he's <laughs> huge. I am a big guy. He makes me look uh, diminutive. He makes me look uh, small insignificant like a speck um, and so I uh, I, I uh, hosted the uh, the event with them and unlike the Will Ferrell event uh, people were uh, th these guys could have come out and done anything right and as it turns out they were really entertaining I'm going to show you a couple of pictures here um, they were really entertaining uh, guys they came out they did great impressions of Arnold Schwarzenegger and and uh, 
everybody else. Um, oh, wow. the, yeah, there we go. And uh, you'll see how big Terry Crews is uh, compared to me. Now, that's even from a, a, an angle. So you don't really get a sense that he's, um, I don't know, a head taller than me, but he's, 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 he's quite large. Um, but uh, uh, these guys were, were um, uh, really interesting to talk to because what I liked discussing with them, I'm just going to get rid of that picture now. What I liked discussing with them uh, was that they were both prof former professional athletes who have now uh, gone into uh, working in, in film. And Terry Crews has been quite successful. He's on the newsroom right now. He plays Will McAvoy's uh, bodyguard. He's in tons of movies. And uh, I love that they were talking about the um, the discipline that they learned in sports and how they brought that over to the realm of, of working uh, on film. And Randy Couture said something interesting. He said, you know, when you're in the ring and you're staring down somebody that's going to be kicking you in the face in about 30 seconds, you learn very quickly how to become very focused about what you're doing. And, uh, and uh, Terry Crews who, I have to tell you, we did this thing, this, this Q&A happened about 10 o'clock last night. He had been up since 4 a.m., flew in, uh, went to the gym, uh, did press all day, uh, went out, and it was so high energy when he got there, I don't know how he does it, but he, uh, he was talking about the first time that he played uh, football, and he said, you know, the crazy thing about it is you get out there and you're like, wow, the locker room is so great. This is my jersey. This is awesome. I've always wanted one of these. And then, you know, you, you go out in the field and you go, wow, there's, there's 15,000 people here watching everything that I do. And then you look across the field and there's a guy that you've worshipped your whole life. And in 40 seconds, you're going to have to punch him in the mouth. <laughs> 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 that was pretty great. So, understandably, I think that the crowd loved these guys. Um, we had about, I don't know, 350, 400 people there to see the movie last night. And uh, they loved these guys because uh, they were honest, down to earth. They were as enthusiastic as anybody in the audience about the movie. And, you know, the movie is what it is. It's, if, if you will pay money, if you paid money to go see the first Expendables movie right. and you walked away and went, oh, it was pretty good you're the guy or person who will enjoy the second one, right? And, and they know that. They know exactly who this movie's for. And that audience was there last night, and it was a blast. It was a lot of fun. And I have no real story other than to sort of regale you with tales of what these guys said, because I just found them both so entertaining. And uh, uh, Terry Crews in the green room told me uh, that uh, Stallone, really is kind of he's he's very warm but he's a tough guy he said he was so tough i shook his hand and hair grew on my palm afterwards <laughs> and uh randy couture uh you know he's a he's a, a fighter mixed martial arts fighter right so yeah. they uh they kick and they punch and they do all sorts of things and uh, i told a, a little joke in the green room uh before we went on and he laughed and i don't know if it was a reflex or if this is just how mma fighters react to uh laughing but he drop kicked me and I'll tell you, he was just messing around. He was just playing around. And I, you know, I was like, <laughs> that was pretty funny. And I tried not to, uh, you know, leave <laughs> in tears because it rattled my bones in a way that I haven't been rattled in a long time. Yeah, it, was, uh, it was a fun, uh, weird night, as these things usually are. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, uh, I enjoyed hanging out with those guys last night. Oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, and often um... – you know, with the, the big action stars, uh, when I read accounts of people who are in Hollywood, uh, tall men usually try to seek them out because the action stars tend to be on the shorter side, yeah. um, infamously, you know, Tom Cruise. But, I mean, by your photographs, you're looking at Terry Crews, yeah. massive man. Wow. Yeah, he's a, he is a massive guy. Here's another picture from last night. And, you know, the, the thing that's funny, and I, I mean, I can tell this story now, Jean-Claude Van Damme is also in the movie. And... Uh, Van Damme, I interviewed years ago uh, at the Cannes Film Festival, mm -hmm. and uh, we hadn't met. I sent it up through a publicist, and the publicist is like, absolutely, he had, you know, whatever, uh, you know, uh, jump him high and kick him in the face, part 10 coming out, you know, or something. And he was there. It wasn't obviously in competition. It was... It was uh, in the market, the market. at Cannes. Yeah. And it was just sort of the market I found when I was covering Cannes, I found it like a fascinating place to go and meet people like Jean-Claude Van Damme and find them. And it was always a great place to go to grab interviews. And so I, I set this interview up for them. And like uh, Cannes, you, we rarely ever shot in a studio. We were normally like, let's go to a park, let's go on the beach, let's go on the roof of a hotel, which is where we took Jean-Claude. So we're up there, we're all set up. 
I'm ready to do this thing. I've got a little stick mic and I'm ready to. And Jean Claude Van Damme comes up and stands next to me, looks at me, and goes, No. <laughs> and then he just didn't know. And I'm like, No, no what? No, what? <laughs> and uh, he goes, oh, We'll have to get someone else to do the interview. And I was like, I, You know, I'm it. I'm the only person. What did I, did I do something yeah. to offend you? He goes, You're way too big. You're way too big. I will look small in front of you. And I was like, Well, it's just me, man. If you want to do the interview, it's got to be with me. And he said, Okay, I know how to fix this. And we stood, honestly, 20 feet apart in a wide shot for the interview so that you couldn't really tell how big he was by comparison to how big I am, how tall I am. Wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jean-Claude Van Damme, everybody. Yeah. But, you know, uh, he, you know, he's in The Expendables now. And I've been reading a bit about it. There's a guy who flamed out. You know, he had a career, yeah. big action career, and then sort of at the height of it, but he'd been making movies that was making, you know, it was making a ton of money worldwide. Uh, Hollywood sort of really came knocking in a serious way and said, you know what? We're done making little exploitation movies with you and, you know, sending you off to the Czech Republic to make, you know, these incredibly violent action movies. Um, you know, let's go with Hollywood. He goes, great. Whatever Jim Carrey's getting paid is how much I want to make. And this was around the time Jim Carrey was making 20 million bucks a movie plus for sure, yeah. And they said, no, you know, you're ridiculous. He held firm. And he claims that that was the end of his Hollywood career, that he was just unemployable after that. And it's kind of interesting now because he has continued to work. He's made, you know, direct-to-video movies quite often. He made a really great, almost, art house film called JCVD mm -hmm. uh, a few years ago, and which everyone thought was going to be a big comeback for him, and then that didn't really happen. Now he's in what is a big Hollywood movie, uh, playing opposite Stallone and Bruce Willis and everyone. So maybe this will be his, uh, his way back in. But uh, he plays a villain. So, uh, you know, and, he, and he's good at it. He's exactly what you want from Jean-Claude Van Damme. And so, you know, maybe this will be his way back in. But all I know is I probably won't be invited on the press junket because I'm too big. <laughs> I scare him with my girth. You're intimidating with your deadly right. muscles, yes. That's right. <laughs> um, well, this week I wanted to share, uh, I'm sharing sort of a strange fascination. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not really a story so much as that uh, being the kind of person that I am, I'm constantly online and sifting through things and I find right. stuff that entertains me. Right. I'm hoping this entertains you, but I, I got like two hours worth of solid entertainment by discovering this last night. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was sifting around and I came across a YouTube video of two nuns. They were standing on the streets of San Francisco, right. stomping their feet, clapping their hands at this busker, which was this punk rock dressed girl. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So it was automatically, it was a very wild and unusual clip. I'll put it on right. our website uh, of this girl, but she's playing, of all things, an accordion. Uh, she has like a stomp board and she's hammering away and it's almost, you know, this massive amount of energy. She's completely just tearing it up. And these two nuns are just eating it up like it's the, the greatest thing in the world. Wow. Um, so I thought, wow, I've never seen a busker on the streets like this before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I did more research on her. I found out that she's this fantastic performer named Rene Laprade. Um, but not only did I, I discover that here's this girl who's devoted her life to playing the accordion. What? <laughs> That she's made it her mission. The accordion has to be the worst instrument to really learn when you're you're young, you know. Well, it's, it's certainly the, the the least cool instrument to learn when you're young. <laughs> yeah. Least, you know, other than maybe, well, even the recorder I think is cooler than the accordion. I don't know, but it's not very high on the cool scale. No, it's it's something people associate with polka. Yeah. Uh, typically, the guys that you see who do learn it and try to make it cool are. are Unfortunately, the worst nerds out there with the bow tie and, you know, it's not really kind of cool. So I was, uh, <laughs> I thought it was unusual that there was a woman who was going to play the accordion and was going to play it like it was rock and roll and punk rock. Right. And that was kind of exciting. But I found out that she's actually made it her mission to make the accordion cool mm -hmm. uh, and to make it really, really sexy. I'm going to share uh, a picture of her. Uh, this is not the best photo, but it's the one I could find of her on Facebook, but gives you an idea. Wow, she's rocking yeah. it out with the accordion. She's completely rocking it out. As, um, the, as Roger Daltrey from The Who would say, Mama's got a squeeze box. Mama's got a squeeze box. Mama's got a squeeze box in that picture. Well, and as I started to kind of dig around, <clears throat> I found out, oh, this is a great image in terms of displaying the style. 
and right. you can see the the skull and crossbones in the yeah, side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, There's a real cool, yeah. kind of uh, leather kind of pirate culture right. to the things that she kind of wears, which is really, really neat. And what I found out as I was hunting around and, and sort of looking up more about her is that she is actually part of an entire community of women really? who are all trying to make the accordion really, really cool. And they all go off and they get employed in these Irish rover bands, these cabaret clubs, these uh, pirate-themed, because out in San Francisco, man, everything goes. And they go out there in the nighttime, and they have a wild collection of unusual acts that are out there. And apparently, there's a real demand for accordion players, and a lot of women have decided to get up there and be punky, cool, and sexy. So... In her efforts to try to make the accordion cool, each year she puts together uh, the Accordion Babes pinup calendar. <laughs> I can find it here. Uh, da, 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 da. Here we are. So there we are, the Accordion Babes uh, wow. pinup calendar. And yeah. I'll scroll down here so you can it's get it. It's the Apocalypse Edition for those who can't see. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And what I love <laughs> is that each of the Accordion Babes does their pose with their accordion yeah and, and they're all uh very different they all seem to have a very different kind of style it's all very kind of you know rock and roll pinuppy, but it's all it's all just a little bit different yeah uh you know some uh will pose with a whip for example others uh you know are go for more of a cowboy look right. uh, the, the whip is to beat people into submission <laughs> and make them force them to listen to it or you get kind of a medieval babe look. Yeah. Here we are with a, yeah. a large sword and, and kind of a chainmail. Uh, anyways, <laughs> <laughs> that's the 2013 edition. She's been doing this for about the last four years. Uh, when you buy the calendar, you also get a compilation CD of a song performed by each of the girls. Uh, wow. So fantastic. I just. Uh, well, a few years ago in, in uh, Louisiana, I went to see a woman named Rosie Lede. And of course, you know, accordions are very heavily used in Zydeco music and, and a lot of music from uh, Louisiana. And, you know, she was a young Zydeco artist, a young female Zydeco artist. And there's, you know, Zydeco is, is mainly party boy music, you know. It's kind of like Creole uh, music is, in, in Cajun music rather. Cajun music is kind of these sad laments about, you know, being kicked out of uh, Nova Scotia or France or Spain or wherever and, and sailing across the ocean to end up in, in New Orleans and you know how hard life is being and all that kind of stuff. Zydeco on the other hand is the party music equivalent of all that but it's mostly men that play it. It's mostly men with names like Buzu Chavez uh, and kind of cool names like that who played this but uh, uh, she was amazing. This Rosie Lede. I don't know what's happened to her. I saw her in a, in a giant club seated about 1500 people um, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and she was incredible. She was incredible, and uh, I will now look her up. Maybe yeah. she's an accordion babe. I don't know. Maybe she's in this calendar somewhere. I don't know. Well, I mean, the thing about this that struck me is that I, I was just impressed by her spirit, yeah. I guess the spirit of the other women. It's really tough when you want to go off and do something different. It's yeah. really hard when that is something that is, uh, by all accounts, not cool, not, you know, yeah. just lame. And you're young, you're in your 20s. I mean, and these women are, you know, to look at them, they're not the kind of uh, outsiders that kind of go off right. and just do their own thing. They're trying to fit socially within the crowds of San Francisco. They're trying to make a living at it. Uh, this woman, uh, who is the first one that caught my eye, Renee, she actually works at an accordion repair shop in San Francisco. <laughs> this is her life. Uh, wow. But I also love just the, the, the pure confidence and spirit because – you know, most people don't understand to, if you get into performance, to put yourself up on a stage, to expose yourself to the kind of derision that can happen, especially when you're not, you know, um, don't have the benefit of being on national TV. It's really, really hard. Hard to kind of wear scantily clad clothing, stand up on the stage and say, hi, my name's Renee. I think the accordion's cool. And then try to convince people of that fact. That's right. The extent that she's gone, not just in producing this pinup calendar, she also uh, went after a pizza parlor. Uh, company in San Francisco <laughs> and convinced them to let her write a song and star in a television commercial wow. to sell pizza. Uh, I saw it on YouTube and it's great. <laughs> well, let, let's put it up on the site. Well, let's yeah. put that up on the site so people can have a look at it. That's awesome. I love that. Okay, so cool. yeah, check out HeyAllYouZombies.com uh, for more accordion babes. And squeeze and box goddesses. Yeah. Squeeze, squeeze box goddesses. Well, I wanted to mention here, uh, just this isn't my next topic, but I just wanted to uh, mention that uh, Ron Palillo, uh, who was one of the sweat hogs, he played Arnold Horshack, oh, right. uh, died uh, today, 
this, but I don't know when you'll be watching this, but um, he died today. And um, he, uh, you know, acted sporadically after that. But if you remember, Horshack was the... <laughs> yeah. Uh, the he like talked that. like this all the time. You That's know, right. Mr. Carter, Mr. Carter. <laughs> and after, after Welcome Back, Carter uh, ended, uh, he, you know, he acted and he taught and he was the artistic director, um, you know, and where he directed for a number of theaters where he directed and, and acted on stage as well. But uh, I always loved Horshack, so I just wanted to uh, give him a little shout out uh, today. For those who were born, I guess, in the late 1980s or the early 1990s, he was kind of the screech of the 1970s. I guess that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good way to put, a, put it in context. Yeah, he was. He was the screech of the 1970s. <laughs> um, I did want to talk about uh, a movie that's coming out this week. It's called Paranorman. Here's a book uh, about Paranorman. And uh, I interviewed uh, the guys that uh, wrote it and directed it, uh, Chris Butler and Sam Fell, the other day. I had them on the radio show. And if you look on the uh, Newstalk1010.com website, uh, you'll find my podcast with the interview. They're really entertaining guys. And I don't know if you can see this that well, but I had them autograph the book, and they drew uh -huh. pictures of Perry Norman and uh, Norman's uncle, uh, which is pretty cool stuff. But one of the things that I, I, I loved about this movie, and I, I mean, I liked a number of things about this movie. One of the things I liked about it uh, is that uh, it takes kids seriously. It, it, it understands that kids can handle a little bit more than stories about talking animals and the ecology. They can handle things that are a little darker and a little weirder. And this movie uh, definitely goes there. It's about a zombie invasion of a town. And Norman uh, is a young boy who's able to talk and see dead, talk to and see dead people. And um, that's about all I'll tell you about it now. I'm not really supposed to review it until Friday, so we'll we'll hang off on that for now. But I loved that it's in stop motion, and this movie was made one frame at a time, and it got me thinking um, about so many of the other great uh, stop-motion movies that I love. And So the textbook definition of stop-motion is to make uh, a physically manipulated object appear to move on its own. So you have these little puppets that you can interchange their faces, you know, frame by frame to make the to form smiles and to make their mouths move, um, but it's painstaking. And... Um, you know, I, I think of uh, artists like Ray Harryhausen and Henry Selleck when I think of the, the legends, the geniuses of stop motion, because they were able to sort of create really unique worlds on film, one frame at a time. And at its best, I think that this stop motion has a real, I don't know, like a timeless quality and kind of an otherworldly charm, because you know that when you're watching this, it was created by humans. This isn't... You know, hand-drawn animation is one thing, and I, I, I get that there's a huge human element in hand-drawn animation. Computer animation, I know someone's there on a keyboard working it out, but this is organic in a way that no other animation is. And um, that's what I, I, I kind of like about it. And Ray Harryhausen uh, once said that he thinks that uh, this kind of animation has um, a real dreamlike quality. And uh, there's a picture of me with Ray Harryhausen uh, taken a few years ago. And if you look on the, the desk in front of him, uh, there are some of his most legendary characters. Uh, but also the, the wolf and the, the rabbit there are from uh, some of his very first films uh, that he uh, had ever made, which I think is uh, kind of cool. And it was a real... I mean, you know, as a film geek in me, my head almost burst open when I was able to, to have a look at this stuff um, uh, in person. But um, um, I wanted to talk just a little bit about uh, some other stuff. So, you know, you've got Ray Harryhausen, who probably uh, is maybe the best known, uh, you know, uh, of all the, the stop motion. But there's another movie uh, called uh, The Cameraman's Revenge. The Cameraman's Revenge is a 1912 film about a jilted husband whose revenge involves filming his wife and their lover and then showing the results at the local cinema. Now, keep in mind, this was made in 1912. The thing that is so crazy about it, though, is that all the uh, characters in this are bugs. They're grasshoppers and, and things. So you've got these, uh, these, these characters, and, and I loved that um, the, the characters are so beautifully animated, considering this thing is 110 years old, the, the things are, are so beautifully animated that one, oh no, it's 100 years old, 
that one critic wondered if the director, the Polish guy called Starovich, taught bugs to perform for the right. camera. Yeah, and I'll see if I can find it uh, on YouTube and post it on the website because it really is this, just this bizarre, beautiful artifact from uh, one of the pioneers of the art form. And, uh, you know, since then, obviously, you know, we've seen it loads of it. Uh, King Kong, one of the more famous stop motion uh, creations. And if you look at Willis's, Willis O'Brien's animation for King Kong, you can actually see where he manipulated the body you can see the fur there's like fingerprints right, in the yes. fur almost and i asked ray harry Housen about that i said you know does that take away uh from the beauty of the animation or does it actually add to it and he goes oh i always just chose to believe that that was the wind blowing through <laughs> king kong's fur that made it move in this really odd way um, but uh i also want to show here this is probably one of Ray Harryhausen's most yes. famous effects from Jason the Argonauts, the uh, the um, uh, skeleton army, and you know this is just uh, such a beautiful sequence. And you know I, I love that it's not always as slick as you know you would find in in a, a computer generated piece or um, something that's uh, uh, you know perhaps crafted a little differently. This. Actually, you can feel the human side of it, that, that, that you know someone worked for weeks or months or possibly years. Paranorman took three years to make, one frame at a time. And I just think it's an incredible art form. And uh, if you uh, have a chance to see Paranorman, by all means, take it. Um, you know, if not, rent uh, Coraline, which is another really great stop-motion animated company or, uh, 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 or movie. Um, also, uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas, I think, is really terrific. Uh, Tim Burton is a huge fan of the art form, and uh, every now and again, one movie from him pops up here and there. Coming soon is Frank and Weenie, which looks incredible to me, and it's yeah. all stop-motion. <laughs> well, I mean, Jason and the Argonauts, I was so entranced because uh, with Harry Hausen very early on in my life, the only exposure I would have with him is whenever he became a part of a news story or a television program that was talking about the movies, and you'd see the same three clips over and right. over again of like the probably, or the, and, right. and this one that I've got up here now, the Cyclops, is one of his famous creations, too. And uh, so I was dying to actually see the entire movie, and right. this wasn't quite at the point where movies were wildly available on DVD or anything right. like that. So the only time they would play, it was like 2 in the morning. Yeah. Uh, my, my friend and I both had this excited plan that we were going to stay up and watch it. And I remember I got to about 1.45 in the morning. Got, I'm pushing myself. Got to stay awake. Got to stay awake. Got to yeah. see Jason and the Argonauts. And then slowly my eyes just sort of closed. And then I woke up and it was like 7 in the morning. And I had completely missed it. It really uh, bummed me out. Well, oh. see, when I was a kid, they used to play these things on Saturday mornings. And that's where I got a, a real love of this. Like, you know, um, when I was young, I would watch, uh, you know, before I went to the matinee at the movie theater, which I did every Saturday, I'd watch like Abner Costello Meet the Mummy, you know, or, or one of those movies. <laughs> and then like, you know, Sinbad or one of the, you know, the adventures of Sinbad or something like that, right with Ray Harryhausen or Jason the Argonauts, and then, you know, go off and see a Bruce Lee movie at the movie theater. That was a pretty good Saturday right there. Yeah. Still is. Still would be. It's fantastic stuff. I love that animation is still around in stop motion. Uh, Nick Park who does uh, yeah. Wallace and yeah. Gromit, they say that they purposefully leave thumbprints yeah. so that you know it's claymation, so that you know that someone has by hand worked it. Because I think, you know, today, if you're very young, you may not understand why Ray Harryhausen is considered to be such a magician. Right. Because there's a big difference in animation styles between someone who's trying to portray a character like Mickey Mouse, right. where the movements are kind of exaggerated, they're fantastic, uh, and somebody like Harryhausen who is taking a fantasy creature but trying to make it real. Yeah. And so trying to convince you on an unconscious level that what you're looking at is the same way that a horse would move or the way that uh, you know, a gorilla would move, even though this is you know, the, the mythological version of it. That's hard. That's really, well, really tough. Imagine doing it one frame at a time. Yeah. And Sam Fell, who's one of the directors of Paranorman, uh, he started off in stop motion and then left it for a while and actually made a movie called Flushed Away, which is a pretty good movie for kids. Uh, but it's computer animated, but computer animated and made to look like it's stop motion animated. Yeah. And you know, it doesn't quite look, it doesn't quite have the organic feel that I really love so much. 
And uh, he's gone back. He's gone back the other way. He, he just loves the, the whole process of stop motion. And they had, at one point, took three years to make Paranorman, and they had 50 animators working on little sets. All, and I mean little sets, tabletop sets. Uh, <laughs> shoot them at the same time, one frame at a time. Yeah, it's it incredibly takes, complicated stuff. Like three days just to be able to do one second of yeah. film. So it's yeah. tremendous uh, amount of dedication. And animators tend to be really crazy guys if you hang out with them. Yeah. Uh, I was listening to a tour of Ardman Animation that does Wallace and Gromit. And the uh, interviewer, when he finally sat down and met Nick Park, was asking because they have a statue of uh, the penguin in their lobby. Right. But he's hidden off to the side. And the penguin, if you haven't seen The Wrong Trousers, was a villain for The, right. the Wrong Trousers. And he mentions to Nick Park, you know, I noticed that you still have, you know, because he was doing what interviewers do, which is to point at things in the studio and go, oh, look, yeah. there's there's a fire engine. Oh, there's that. Yeah. I'm, I, he says, I, I remember uh, coming in, I saw the penguin near the lobby. Maybe you talk about that. And Nick Park suddenly panics and says, what do you mean he's here? He, why didn't you call security? Why, uh, oh my, uh, sound the alarm! The penguins in the building. You know, and it was just fantastic. And of course, funny. convincing enough that you weren't quite sure. You know, you're waiting for the joke to end, and of course, it doesn't. It's why did you not raise the alarm? The penguins in the building. Quick, oh, we're going to have a security guy go down there and just make sure. Whoo! Thank you for telling us. You know, like I love that kind of <laughs> zaniness where you're not quite sure if the guy's in control of his life or not. That's fantastic. Right. Well, Ray Harryhausen uh, said, you know, if you try and make fantasy too real with CGI, you bring it down to the level of the mundane. And maybe that's what Nick Park was thinking with his yeah. story about the, the, the penguin. It's not mundane at all to have a villainous <laughs> penguin in your lobby. Well, and it's too tempting, I think, to use computers to just take uh, an animal and then sort of, you know, do motion tracking and get yeah. all the, the motions locked down and go, there! Uh, you know, there still has to always be a certain amount of uh, interpretation and you have to kind of um, have the, the mental space of what I guess the character is moving through. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking of animals, this has been Shark Week. Shark I don't know if you've been watching it at all. It's if not, you're not alone. Uh, <laughs> yes. I, I admit I'm like, you know, it's been 25 years. That's the big deal about shark week this week right. is that they've been doing it for 25 years. Uh, and they claim that at least down in the United States, it still gets about 21 and a half million people watching the series. It's, it's always wild to me. I mean, I just went to see jaws last week on the big screen. Again, I hadn't seen it on the big screen for a very long time. And the theater was packed. It's been playing all summer here in Toronto. The theater was packed. Uh, people were still kind of like freaked out by it. And then, you know, at, at the end of it, though, this old guy got up and left. And as he walked in, he goes, I thought the shark would get away this time. You'd seen it a lot of times, I guess. But, but it shows that there's a lot of shark fans out there still. People going to see movies about sharks. Shark Week is still like huge draw. Yeah, well, and it's, it's, I mean, I love sharks. I find them utterly transfixing. Right. Shark Week is sort of an odd relationship I have. I'm glad that they kind of, you know, uh, create this hysteria around it. But the programming, you know, it tends to be almost like a monster truck rally. Uh, right, right, right. The great thing about Jaws is that if you see the original trailer uh, out there, is that they didn't go at it in that style. They didn't go, hey, well, watch out, there's right. sharks. You know, it was very deep bass tone voice you know it's as if they took the devil and <laughs> jaws you know i love that and i i kind of regret that shark week doesn't take uh, take that kind of direction i mean this week there are two specials and one features colossus uh and the other one features sharkzilla so when right, i say right. it's like a monster truck rally i'm not exaggerating and do they show like uh, i haven't uh, you know really been watching do they show like the roger corner like sharktopus stuff like that or is that are these no. all like documentaries? No. But I mean, they, they almost come close to it. They're all supposed to be real documentaries, right. but they've been Americanized in a way where it's, it's you know, they've dumbed everything down. Right. So right. The, the first one that they had uh, Sunday night, they actually hired uh, David Wenham, who uh, was the actor right. in 300 that did the narration. The guy oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. There were 300 Spartans, and we took on, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. They hired him to do that voice, and then they stylized the entire show with the copper skies and the lightning bolts coming wow. down, exactly like in 300, to kind of hype up this, you know, movie where they had a, I think it was a 12-foot white, great white, but to make it more exciting, they called him Colossus. Um, <laughs> that kind of, you know, in stupid insanity that they did. But what makes Shark Week worth watching has been the change in technology. 
that's kind of what I wanted to talk about today. Uh, and that it is, it is worth kind of coming back to the insanity just because of that. The main innovation that's happening with Shark Week is that they're now using devices called phantom cameras, which mm. are high-speed cameras. They shoot a thousand frames per second, the exact right. opposite of stop motion here. Right. Completely slows it all down. But the, the thing is that they've got it in high definition, and uh, they now have managed to get those cameras down below. For, for about four or five years, they've just been doing air jaws with sharks right. jumping out of the water. That's been getting right, really tiresome. Right, right. But this past Sunday, if you watched, oh, beautiful, wonderful shot, shots of these sharks coming by. I was turning off the volume because I just didn't want to hear the, the narration and all the right, other right, right. I don't need that. Uh, you could actually see the shark as he came up, and you could see the parasites in the pores wow. of the skin. Wow. Beautiful. Uh, they've managed to get cameras now that they can put inside the mouth of a yeah. shark, so you actually get the view inside. And well, I'd never known, but um, just below the gum line, some sharks, where the teeth are supposed to be coming up, a tooth has fallen out, there's a little parasitical worm hanging out. It's just grotesque. Like living in the hole? Yeah. Living in the hole where there should be a tooth, you know. So we're now starting to see sharks in this wow. detail that's just beyond, uh, beyond belief. But um, there's a lot of new technology that's popping up, and it's been making nature documentaries very exciting. We've been... Right. We've been suffering through years of some, you know, just as the mama bear protects the cubs, so too does mutual life of all <laughs> It's been kind of getting tiresome and boring. I'm excited about this stuff, but I know what other people aren't. So technology has kind of changed that. Right. The other big thing has been the introduction of GPS and satellite tags. Which, you know, again, that seemed to be boring. You always see them, you know, uh, capture the animal, hit it with a tag, let it go. Is that entertaining? I don't know. You know, it's it's what do you do with the information? And so right. what became right. interesting recently, not this week of Shark Week, but in past Shark Weeks, was the mysteries that come out of the information that they get. And that really hooks me. So the, the big mystery that's been happening with sharks is that a few years ago they discovered that killer whales hunt and eke great white sharks. <gasps> no one... Yeah, yeah, this surprised everybody. It's the, it's the clash of the titans. Clash of the titans. <laughs> you know, it's the kind of thing that they would fake with computer simulation, but it actually happened right. in the wild. And it happened sure. back in 1994. There were some whale watchers. Yeah, they got their binoculars yeah. all coming out in San Francisco Bay. There were some killer whales who were sort of diving. They had eaten a, a, a sea lion, so there's lots of blood in the water. And this apparently attracted... Massive great white, very large great white, a great white shark that was as large as the killer whales themselves. Right. But he had come by just kind of because there was blood in the water. There was nothing really aggressive about him. One of the killer whales turned, went straight at the great white, and killed it within, you know, like right away, one blow. Yeah. And it shocked everybody. Uh, what had happened was the killer whale realized that if you hit the, ran the, the, the great white shark, it stuns the shark, and then he would flip the great white shark with his nose. And when right. a shark is turned upside down, it's like uh, it becomes immobile. It's like a turtle. Yeah. Kind of like a turtle. It just sort of goes into a trance. And all the killer whale did was just hold the shark in that position for 15 minutes, which was enough to suffocate a great white. A great white has to keep moving just to keep breathing, to keep yeah. water going yeah. through. And once it had killed the great white, it ripped it apart and ate its liver. Wow. Uh, killer yeah. whales are one of the most frightening creatures on the planet. If you find out enough about them, you'll never go to marine land again. <laughs> <laughs> they really do live up to their name. They're highly, highly intelligent. Right. Anyways, the mystery that came out of this was that the moment that that happened, that a killer whale shark ate a great white, within minutes, every other great white within uh, thousands of kilometers around the area left. <laughs> wow. wow yeah and like there were a hundred great white sharks that were known to be in that area that all instantly yeah. within minutes just took off uh and thanks to gps satellite tracking they could actually find out what was happening one of the sharks had a satellite tag it turned out that the moment that that happened he dived down to 1500 feet below the ocean stayed down there and didn't come up until he reached hawaii Wow. From San Francisco to Hawaii. So the mystery that everybody's been trying to figure out is how did that one action send out a signal yeah, yeah, yeah. to all these other sharks that are thousands of miles away to then beat and get out? And why were they so afraid of killer whales? Is it that, you know, that, yeah. that kind of a situation? And this has been intriguing because there's a lot of things happening with communication and animals. We don't know 
really what it is. You remember those old stories, really cheesy stories about animals and ESP? Yeah, yeah. Dogs that seem to know what somebody was going through. Well, we are starting to learn that animals have ways of communicating that we never completely imagined. Elephants, for example, can send out frequencies through the pads of their feet into the ground that another elephant can hear more than 20 kilometers away. Uh, Same with giraffes and stuff. So there's some sort of signal that great whites can send out that other great whites can hear and be very, very far away. And and some think it's scent. It could be anything. Great whites are amazing in that they're like the Curiosity rover. Very small brain, but highly specialized. That that whole stripe from the nose right down to the tail on a shark is actually one large motion detector strip. goes right across their entire body. They have little packets of gel in their snout that actually can detect vibration. You know, once you get to learn, a shark is just all sensors. It's just amazing, amazing, amazing. So beautiful things that uh, we can still sort of find out that you don't have to start doing Sharkzilla documentaries to, to, to sort of emphasize. But while this is happening here in the States where they're playing around with phantom cameras, over in England right now, they have an entire week devoted to night vision cameras and thermal imaging cameras. Yeah, and this is awesome. I mean, this is tech I want to play with. I want to go out into the night with this thermal vision because they're just beautiful. The detail that you get uh, from some of these things, I'm going to pull up here. Uh, This was a shot that a guy had grabbed of a flightless bird. Oh, cool. In the middle of the night, he could see just the head. It's almost like an ostrich. And then out of his feathers popped up all these other little tiny heads. Wow. Uh, the detail that you get off of these cameras is just uh, staggering. Uh, you know, almost look like aliens or something. That's cool, that one. I like that. Yeah. And, and they've been um, tracking and tracing pumas, right. all sorts of animals. But the cool thing about it is we've never had the technology to really study animal life in the dark. And so they are finding things that they would never have imagined before. Um, the, the one that really stuck me was vampire bats. Oh, uh, there's two things that I've learned about vampire bats. The first is that they're the ones that are behind um, walls and haunted houses that have blood running down them. <laughs> so if you think of movies like, I guess, The Exorcist, yeah. uh, even, you know, the, uh, the, the Shining, they have those scenes where you see blood running down yeah. the walls. That happens in real life. There are hu- Yes, there are houses down in, say, South America where somebody's trying to move in, and they realize that you walk in, there's blood just dripping down the walls. Now, everyone's had a religious interpretation of that. Right. Turns out it's you've got a, a vampire bat infestation. <laughs> That's crazy. Wow. Because vampire bats, they eat blood. Yeah. And so when they poop, it's blood that they poop. And so wow. they would hide up in the rafters, and so you literally would have blood streaking down <laughs> the walls of houses. That's what that's about. Wow. Um, the one it's not doc- the Amityville Horror. It's a, yeah, it's, a, it's a vampire bat infestation. <laughs> Which is probably not any less horrifying yeah. if I were to tell you. You'd be like, oh, yeah. my gosh. There was a, a cameraman that went down there with a night vision camera to try to see these vampire bats, and he found a, a house that was down in, I guess, uh, New Mexico, somewhere around there. And when he went inside, they were all in the bathroom. And he opened up the bathroom door, and it was just covered from ceiling down the floor. The toilet was just dripping in this black glue. There, and there was about, you know, 800 bats up there. So there was enough of this bat poop that the whole place looked, he, you know, it was the worst toilet you'd ever seen. Yeah, that's no uh, horrific. That is a horrific guano story. <laughs> Well, the the mystery that came about with the vampire bats that they had to go down with these cameras to find out is that uh, down in the Magellan Strait in South America, there is an island out in the middle of sort of surrounded by large bodies of water. And it's one of those islands that's just a large outcropping of rock. Right. Right. Isolated, nothing there. Well, the locals had been talking about the fact that there was a huge colony of vampire bats that lived there, that if you were brave enough to go, you would find a cave, and inside that cave would just be fought piles and piles of vampire bats. And it's, uh, it's exactly out of the horror movies, because if you show up, the whole rocky island just has a horrible smell of death to it. It looks post-apocalyptic. It's like the yeah. surface of the moon. There's large boulders. It's the, it just, everything is wrong. You know that classic line, I've got a bad feeling about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. the kind of island that it is, and people have been staying away from it for years. But it's become an interest to naturalists because as they've heard about the story, someone realized that there's a problem. 
Vampire bats, usually you find them inland because, of course, they have to feed on right. animals with blood. Other bats can eat insects and vegetables and that kind of stuff. They would make sense to find on an isolated island where there's no other animals. Right. So the question is, what are the vampire bats feeding on? If you have other vampire island, bats. Right. Well, if you have an island out in the middle of the, the water and there's nothing yeah. else around. So this was what they went down with their night vision cameras. Right. And uh, what they found out after tracking and tracing them was that the vampire bats were feeding on um, large uh, sea lions and walruses. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And there's a myth about vampire bats. You'll see this in every special where they say that uh, vampire bats, when they feed, their victims are completely unaware. <laughs> their victims turn into bats. Yeah. Well, <laughs> they always show um, like a vampire bat going on some poor cattle rancher's cows and right. just you know licking blood off the, the hoof of the, the animal. But they've always said, like, even if you – they do feed on humans. It's very rare, but if they do, you'd, you'd wake up and not even realize it. You'd find right. a bite and you go, oh, wow. What they realize with the night vision cameras, that's wrong. That is completely, <laughs> completely, utterly wrong. These poor animals, these, these sea lions, were terrified all night. They couldn't sleep at all. It was like black flies and mosquitoes. You wow. see these large walruses flapping their, their, their fins just trying to get rid of these damn things, which are creepy in the most yeah. frightening way. They, they, they crawl along walls. They kind of land, and they sort of hop up and come up behind you, and they just lance this little hole and search. Oh, it was just ah, the most wow. horrible thing that, you know. I've that ever is seen. awful. So, it's yeah. like uh, something from Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds mixed with Nosferatu or something. Yeah, terrible. Completely. Yeah, like there are some things where you um, see horrifying things in the movies, and then when you find out in real life, it's not quite the same. Yeah. Jaws being an excellent example, yeah. you know, Great white sharks are not uh, as intelligent as the ones that are in the movie or as large or as dangerous. Everything you've seen about bats and vampire bats in the movies is true. And <laughs> wow. I have to go and tease Dan Riskin at Discovery at Daily Planet about this because it's like he's been on a mission to show that bats are cute. I've met some mammologists. I've seen lots of bats. I agree. In my eyes, they're very cute. Vampire bats scare the freak out of me, though. Yeah. I don't know if I want to do anything with them. It's just right. Like, oh. Yeah, no, I the, the guano story, the gory, the guano gore is enough to keep me away from it. <laughs> oh. So that leads us, I think, to another contest. To another contest, yes. yes. Uh, we call it Movie Pistols at Dawn. Mm -hmm. This time it's not so much about movies. Uh, I'm going to post a, a link. It was very cute. This didn't inspire me for this contest. Right. It's something I read afterwards. But on Twitter, uh, the Brooklyn Zoo Cobra, there's someone who tweets as the Brooklyn Zoo Cobra. Right. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, tweets about escaping and can right. deliver keys to me, that kind of thing. Well, he's written an entire rant online about he's had enough of all the damn shark week for 25 right. years. There should be a snake week. And it's a very mm -hmm. funny read. I'll put that on our website. But our contest is what other animal should Discovery really devote an entire week to? Uh, we've had 25 years of sharks. They're wonderful. But, you know, it's only one week of the year. Right. There's so many other weeks, so many other things that are, are fascinating, intimidating. What deserves to have its own week? What say right. you, Richard? Well, you know, I, I think I would have to go with a feline theme for uh, the weekend. And not just because... I can sit and watch kittens do anything like a like those uh, log channels, those fireplace channels that you have at Christmas. I can just watch kittens sleeping for a week and and you know enjoy it. But uh, beyond that, maybe that could be like a special just to chill us all out at the end on Sunday night at the end of kitten week or cat week. Uh, we could just have like a few hours of kittens sleeping just to help us go to sleep and feel relaxed. But I just find uh, the 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 uh, the the uh, sheer variety of cats and the the differences in their lives uh that i used to have a, a, a domesticated cat who was a norwegian forest cat who was bred to be a very certain uh, kind of cat he had a little overbite because his job was to pull little like hedgehogs out of holes and things and and, that, and and i just think that the way that they've adapted and what i found really fascinating about this little cat is that he had never lived in the wild he was bought from a pet store and brought home and uh and he didn't go outside we lived in an apartment in a downtown in a big city so he didn't go outside uh but he would still stalk things he had instinct that had been bred into him 200 years before that was still very much there now unfortunately he was stalking uh a table 
or maybe a mushroom that fell to the floor while I was cooking. But nonetheless, he still, he understood how to do it, you know? And I just find them fascinating. Big ones, little ones, uh, the way that they have a sense of community uh, and, you know, that sort of thing that there's a, there is a, 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 you know, not only just a, a, a sense of community, but a, a real sense of respect amongst the tribes of, of cats and things. So I, I would have to go for uh, a week of not only sleeping kittens, because I could watch that, and I really mm -hmm. seriously would, but I'd like to learn more. I'd like to see more and go a little bit more in depth. Yeah, completely. Uh, you know, um, the big cats are some of the great performance artists of the wild, yeah. aren't they? Yeah. Um, the, the night vision people, they went out and they saw a puma. They're sitting in this little tent, and there's a massive storm going on. There's winds ripping out. They're thinking that they're all going to be drowned, and the, the thing's going to be thrown away. And out in the field is a puma that is found a bit of fluff that the weather has just taken and flipped around. <laughs> He's just playing around with it. Like, That's awesome. He doesn't care less that there's a big storm going on that might kill everybody else. It, for him, it's playtime, you know, this yeah. beautiful cat. Wow. Um, my approach, I was thinking about it. I was trying to think of a uh, novelty answer, sort of, you know, make it lemur week or something like that. Yeah. Um, Meerkat week. Meerkat week, yes. Yeah. But it, instead, I, I actually came up with a serious answer. I thought, well, okay, if I was, you know, um, in charge of programming, right. I would go for um, mollusks. Oh. But I would call it alien underwater aliens week. And mollusks range from little tiny snails, which have this amazing ability. They can actually crawl along a samurai sword and not get cut. It's just the, 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 the goo that they exude can kind of allows them to go over razor blades and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, yeah. But it would also include um, clams, cuttlefish, which are highly intelligent mm -hmm. and have the ability to camouflage themselves, even wow. creating lumps in their skin and that kind of stuff, all the way up to the um, octopuses, the squids, and the colossal squid, which is, right. you know, the kraken come real. Yeah, yeah. But the reason I'm interested about it is um, Richard Dawkins said that the giant squid is the real Martian alien. That right. That's the creature that we've been looking for. Of everything that's sort of on the planet, this is what would be most representative of what you'd find in outer space. Wow. The giant squid has three hearts and blue blood. It's just... Unlike wow. anything that, that's that is alien, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I love that. So I would love to have a week where it's just a look at underwater aliens, and you could even do what Discovery does, which is bring in celebrities like Sigourney Weaver to host right. aliens yeah, yeah, to yeah, take yeah. a look at all these individual creatures. And then at the end of it, Sigourney Weaver could uh, fight a giant squid. <laughs> that's how they. That's why you were tuned in Sunday night at ten o'clock. Sigourney Weaver wrestles a giant colossal squid. I would pay that. You know what? I would vote for that. Get away from her, you cellophopod. Ah! That's exactly. That's right. That's yes. Right. Well, she can host both because, of course, one of the best cats in the movies is Jonesy from The Alien. So it could be a crossover at the end See? between felines and underwater aliens. That's right. Well, it comes to the end of our Lucky Lucky 13th episode. We want to thank you all for tuning in. And uh, please, by all means, go to our website, hailyouzombies.com. Click, click, click. Give us a vote. And give us your uh, submissions and any ideas that you might have for what we can do on the show. See you next time.